0: Now, it wasn't all that long ago, but it was August 2020, uh, and in Melbourne, we were in the middle of our second lockdown, which lasted 111 days. And we had four reasons, if you remember, to leave our house, and without permission to leave a five-kilometre bubble radius. And I remember reading an article with this headline, Melbourne Magnate Sails Away from Face Masks and lockdown. Members of two wealthy Melbourne families sailed their super yacht, the Lady Pamela, from Melbourne to Queensland on a two-week odyssey, stopping at such enticing destinations as Refuge Cove in Wilson's Prom, uh, Eden on the south coast of New South Wales, Jarvis Bay, Coffs Harbour, and finally the Gold Coast, where they had permission to moor their super yacht. Now, at that time, uh, they were exempt from a 14-day quarantine. Meanwhile, back in Melbourne, there were hundreds of infections and quite a few deaths from COVID. And I remember at the time feeling quite outraged. Here I was in curfew city, rationing toilet paper, one piece at a time, and the Melbourne elite were scoffing at the rules, sipping champagne, nibbling on their lobster, all the way up to sunny Queensland. I was outraged. How dare they, I thought. And after a while, I wondered, what if they'd invited me? Well, soon my, my outrage morphed into envy. Uh, if only I was a friend of the Simmons and the Fox families. If only I'd scored an invite on their escape from lockdown. I mean, who would have said no to a seat on a super yacht in the middle of a lockdown? Envy's not that far from any one of us, is it? I've just come back from 11 days on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. It was really hard not to envy the weather, the sunny outdoors, the beach, the lifestyle. And to envy is to desire what belongs to someone else. But it's more than just a desire, isn't it? It, There's a dissatisfied longing, a resentment of one's own situation. And envy, according to the Bible, is a sin. And it's a sin that affects every one of us. Uh, Psalm 73 is all about envy and what we should do with it. And the psalmist goes on a bit of a journey with his envy. And the things he learns are actually great lessons for all of us, and we're going to do that tonight. We're going to learn those lessons as we look at this psalm. But first, let's pray. Let's ask God for help to understand. Uh, Gracious Father God, thank you for Psalm 73 that speaks to our hearts. Please open our hearts, cut us to our heart, that we might turn to you, that we might trust in Jesus. Help me to speak your word faithfully with love and clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're told at the start that this is a psalm of Asaph, and in the book of 1 Chronicles, Asaph, under King David's rule, was a leader of God's people in singing and in praise. And much later in the book of Ezra, Asaph's descendants were also song leaders in Israel. And this means that this psalm was either written by Asaph or attributed to one of his descendants. And there are different opinions about what kind of psalm this is. Uh, Some think of it as a wisdom psalm, but there's also elements of lament, crying out to God, and also thanksgiving. I think all of these elements actually tie together in this psalm. Well, three things I want to look at in this psalm. God is good, verses 1 to 16. The turning point, verses 17 to 26. And God is enough, verses 27 to 28. Well, firstly, God is good, but... Have a look at verse 1. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray, for I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, right from the outset, the psalmist highlights his personal dilemma. He knows from observation and experience that God is a righteous God, that God responds to those who are pure in heart, Righteous in their dealings with God and with others. But for him, there is this personal conflict, because it didn't compute for him when he looked at the lifestyle of the wicked. In fact, instead of being drawn to live a righteous life, he actually envied what he saw as the good life of the wicked. And it says he was drawn to the edge of a cliff. Do I keep living the righteous life? Or do I plunge into the depths of the wicked life? And why would he consider that? Well, just how good do the wicked have it? Have a look at verse 4. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imagination of their hearts run wild. They mock, they speak maliciously, they arrogantly threaten oppression. The wicked are seemingly carefree. Compared to other people, they do what they want, when they want, even if that causes harm to others. They're greedy, they're arrogant, and they get away with it. Think of the corrupt government officials who who grow their riches from allowing a foreign company to mine the minerals from a poorer country, only to leave environmental damage and death for those who live there. And not only do the wicked treat others like this, they also treat God in the same way. Look at verse 9. They set their mouths against heaven. Their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase their wealth. The wicked boast of their God-like power. They think that God himself is powerless, ignorant compared to themselves. I think of the... Netflix comedian who makes his millions from mocking God and people flocking to lap up their words. Life is good for the wicked. And here's the first existential problem for the psalmist. Why do good things happen to bad people? I know God is good, but why does he allow this? They don't treat him well. They don't treat others well. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, Remember that saying cheaters never prosper? Well, it seems they do. And God seemingly turns a blind eye to it, and they get away with it. Uh, This is not an intellectual problem for the psalmist. This is a personal and deeply emotional problem for the psalmist. Remember in verse 3, he envied the wicked. His heart is torn apart by grief. Verse 13, did I purify my heart And wash my hands in innocence for nothing, for I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. And when I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. Unlike the wicked, the psalmist has tried to live this righteous life. His hands, his heart have been clean before God, and yet where has this gotten him? Instead of being rewarded by God, he has suffered. Now, we're not told what this affliction is, but he's certainly in emotional and mental turmoil, and he's kept these things to himself. Because he knows that if he had unleashed his emotion, his words, he would have damaged God's people around him. His crisis of faith may well have led others to a crisis as well. Now, here's the second existential problem for the psalmist. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does a good God not only reward bad people, but why does he seem not to care for the people who are doing the right thing before him? Uh, At the start of the war in Ukraine, Natalia Sidorov was made a widow. Her husband Anton was killed by Russian shells, and she now has three young daughters to raise on her own. Now, meanwhile, Russian oligarchs uh, make billions of dollars from corrupt government deals. Now, why would they put pressure on Vladimir Putin to stop the war when they benefit from his regime? Now, who could blame Natalia if she wondered, what is the point of all this? You try to lead a good, simple life, and it leads to more suffering. When others cheat, lie, murder, steal, and they get away with it. Can you relate to the problems that the psalmist is facing? I'm sure at some point you have, or you will. I've worked hard, you know, quietly at my job, and instead of me getting a promotion, all the lazy, loud-mouthed gossips in my department get promoted ahead of me. I've been trying to do the right thing in my marriage for years, and yet my selfish spouse cheats on me. All I want from God is some health to care for my family, maybe to do some ministry for him, and yet God gives good health to that guy? What do you do when you reach that point? What do you do? What are the options? It's a crucial point, isn't it? And that's where the psalmist reaches in the, in the psalm. Remember what the psalmist said, his feet almost slipped. Like he's standing on that edge of that cliff. In front of you are the carefree, prosperous wicked, and envious, staring you at the face. Should I turn away from God, jump off the cliff to join the wicked? After all, if you can't beat them, join them. If my husband cheats on me, well, why shouldn't I do the same? If someone else is going to climb over me at work, well, what's stopping me from playing the same game? You know, when someone decides to throw their faith in, it started a long time earlier. Uh, The decision to stop reading the Bible, to stop praying, to drift in uh, Bible study attendance, church attendance. that, That happened a while ago. Everyone has grief in their heart. Everyone has envy scratching at the door, but it's what you do with it. Will you turn away from God or will you lean even deeper into him? With all the grief, all the turmoil of your heart, will you seek his presence? And that's exactly what the psalmist does. Instead of jumping off the cliff, he turns and leans further into God's presence. This brings us to the turning point in the psalm. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Now for the psalmist's original hearers, the sanctuary represents the temple, the place where you do business with God. Now for us in the New Testament, uh, we don't have a temple any longer because the temple is a person, Jesus Christ. We enter God's presence when we actually trust in Jesus. So prayer is how we approach God. Reading and hearing God's word is how we listen to God. So when we lean into God, that is how we do it. We talk to God. We listen to God. When we're in turmoil, do you cry out to him in prayer? Do you turn to his scriptures? And you see, when you do that, lament, grief, crying out to God has this opportunity to actually become wisdom. Now remember, remember back in Genesis, Cain's envy towards his brother Abel becomes foolishness when he actually turns away from God. He was warned by God about his envy, and yet he chose to not listen to God and allow his envy to get the better of him. So he ignored God's warning and he killed his brother out of envy. Now what is the wisdom that the psalmist gains when he actually does business and enters the sanctuary. What he learns is that God is just, and the wicked will face God's judgment. Verse 18, "'Instead you put them in slippery places, you make them fall into ruin, "'how suddenly they become a desolation. "'They come to an end, swept away by terrors, like one waking from a dream. "'Lord, when arising, you will despise their image.'" Now, the first thing that the psalmist realizes is that the wicked will not escape God's judgment. You cannot treat God with disdain. You cannot treat others with disdain and get away with it. The seemingly invincible wicked will one day be swept away by God's judgment. Now, it may seem to us that the wicked get away with it in this life, but for God, the wicked are as short-lived as a bad dream. Romans 2 verse 6 says, God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistent in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Now, there is comfort in God's judgment, isn't there? It's It's not what we would normally think. Because on the whole, I think most of us, have not really experienced great injustice. Now, we normally think of God as a bit harsh if he judges, a bit unnecessary, a bit over the top, but God's judgment is comforting. Let me show you how. Uh, In recent years, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell were both found guilty of having groomed teenage girls for abuse by an elite social circle of their friends. Uh, This systematic sex trafficking took place between 1994 and 2004. Now, in 2019, Epstein died in his prison cell attributed to suicide while he was awaiting criminal conviction. Maxwell was convicted in December uh, on f- Last year, on five counts of sex trafficking, she faces 50 years in jail, which will be effectively the rest of her earthly life. The U.S. Attorney-, attorney said upon her conviction, justice is done. And both Maxwell and Epstein still face God's judgment for what they did. Now, I want you to imagine what it was like for those teenage girls after they were abused, completely powerless compared to this power couple, Maxwell and Epstein, who had connections with royalty, with government officials, with Hollywood celebrities. And during the 90s and early 2000s, they were seemingly invincible because of their connections. Now think of how comforting it is now for these women and their families that although it has taken 20 to 30 years since their abuse, it's good, isn't it, to realize that the wicked will not prosper forever. The wicked will not escape God's judgment. Even if they escape earthly judgment like Epstein, they still have to face the wrath of God. Judgment is comforting. And it can be comforting to you as well. That those who have sinned against you will not escape God's judgment. He sees all, he knows all, even when no one else does, and no one else will take action. That's one lesson. But there's still more to learn for the psalmist. Look at verse 21. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal towards you. The second thing that the psalmist realized at this turning point is that his own heart was wrong. Now he doesn't hold back, does he? When he describes himself, I was stupid, so full of self-pity, no better than a brute beast. His bitter envy could have led him to great foolishness. But there is mercy with God if we're prepared to be honest and humble. You know those times when uh, someone close to you points out something you've done wrong? There's this opportunity, isn't there, to be honest, to say, yes, you're right. I'm sorry, I I did the wrong thing. And when you do that, it, it goes better, doesn't it? Eventually, it goes better for you. But often what we do when someone points out something we've done wrong is we double down on our pride. We get defensive. We say we haven't done the wrong thing. We stubbornly refuse to admit our wrong, and things get worse. I wonder if you're doing that in your relationship with God and with others, stubbornly insisting you're right, everyone else, including God, is wrong. How's it working out for you? You see, if you're prepared to be honest with God, there is mercy. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke records that there were two other criminals crucified with Jesus to the left and to the right. Now, crucifixion was reserved for the worst kind of criminals or insurrectionists, radical revolutionaries. So these two guys who were crucified with Jesus, they weren't angels, okay? They had done the wrong thing. They were facing a brutal judgment, and it represents this last-ditch opportunity for a turning point for these two men. Now, one of the men doubles down on his pride. Instead of being honest about his own wrongdoing, his life, he starts to heap insult on Jesus, But for the other criminal, it is a turning point. This is what Luke says. But the other criminal rebuked him, the other criminal here. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. While God is committed to justice, when you turn to him in honest repentance, you will find him to be so full of mercy. Friends, have you reached that turning point in your life? Because what you do next really matters. Honesty that leads to wisdom, that leads to life with Jesus. Or stubborn pride that leads to self-denial, that leads to self-destruction. And the has now moved from the turmoil and the distress and the envy of his heart to a very different place. In fact, he's done a complete turnaround. Look at verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven? But you, and I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now I want you to see that the before and after for the psalmist. His feet almost slipped in verse 2, but now God holds his hand. His innermost being, that is heart, his heart, was wounded in verse 21, but now God is the strength of his heart. He envied the prosperity of the wicked in verse 3, but now he desires nothing else but God in verse 25. And this psalm has been the journey of his heart. Look at how far his heart has traveled. In his head, he could always say in verse 1 that God is good to the pure in heart, but his experience led him to question that in verse 13. Did I purify my heart for nothing? And that led him to a place of bitter turmoil in his heart, verse 21. But after turning to God with this conflicted heart, he concludes with this in verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, envy begins in your heart and the root of envy is a heart that is not satisfied. And when your heart is not satisfied, there are two options. You either change your circumstances or you change what your heart desires. And by the end of this psalm, there's no indication that the psalmist's circumstances have changed at all. The wicked is still prospering; he's still suffering affliction. What's changed? What his heart desires. A great man once said, "Lasting contentment is a changed heart, not changed circumstances." Well, actually, I came up with that, but you know, <laughs> feel free to use it. But it's true, isn't it? You see, our circumstances, they change all the time. Imagine basing your contentment on your circumstances. If only I'd this, then I'd be happy. If only I moved to Queensland, I'd be happy. If only my heart had what the wicked have, then I would be satisfied. It's a lie, isn't it? You wouldn't be. Imagine if the thing that your heart longed for was always reliable always present, always trustworthy, the same yesterday, today, and forever. What if God was the desire of your heart? Well, then you could have peace in any circumstance because it wouldn't matter what anyone else had because in the end, you knew that you had the one thing that no one could take away from you, and that is God himself. What do you value more? from God or God himself? And what if the thing that you've been looking for all this time, what if it turns out to be God himself? This brings us to our final point, God is enough. Verse 27, those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you, but as for me, God's presence is my good. I've made the Lord my refuge so I can tell About all you do. And so the psalmist now has reached the conclusion of his journey. The wicked will face God's judgment. As for me, though, God is enough. I don't want prosperity from God, I want presence with God. And that is enough. Why do you think it is that God is allowing you to go through what you're going through? where people around you have better health, have better wealth, better houses, better spouses, perhaps God wants you to teach, to learn this thing, that the answer to your envy is that God is and has always been enough for you. Uh, Corrie Ten Boom was a Dutch Holocaust survivor who suffered at the hands of the wicked. Her family were devout Christians who saved the lives of many Jews in a hiding place in her house. Some of you have read that book. Until they were actually turned into the Nazis by someone they knew. And her father died 10 days later in prison. And Corrie and her sister Betsy were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp where they were treated brutally. They witnessed horrific suffering. And despite all this, Betsy and Corrie continued to minister to the women around them at Ravensbrück. And Betsy, sadly, died at the end of 1944. Just nine days later, Corrie was released from that concentration camp. And when she reached home, she learned that her nephew had also died at the hands of the Nazis. Now, who could have blamed Corrie Ten Boom if her heart had become embittered by grief and envy at what the wicked did to her? Instead, after the war, Corrie Ten Boom set up rehabilitation centers to help former concentration camp survivors. She even ministered to her former enemies. She wrote books. She traveled the world speaking on God's forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you live like that? What's the secret to living like that, with peace and joy and purpose and contentment in spite of your circumstances? Now, it wasn't always easy for Corrie Ten Boom to live like that. Here's the secret, though. This is something she once said. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Father, you know uh, the envy of our hearts. We're often not honest ourselves about the envy that we have when we look at those around us and how much better they seem to have it. Gracious Father, help us to lean into you when we feel that grief, that resentment, that bitterness. Uh, Father, please bring us to our senses. Help us to understand your just judgment and help us also to understand that you have and always have been enough for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.